last few UK games leading up to the championship game were kind of intense. I've read. <laughs> Nail biters. I've read. Shouldn't have made it to the final four. I read. And yet they did. But at the end of the day, UConn was stronger. I, my junior year of high school, my high school basketball team did something similar, only on a much smaller scale. In Indiana, I know those of us in Kentucky, we like to think that we're, basketball is the end-all and be-all, but believe it or not, Hoosiers, people who grew up in Indiana, have that same love for basketball, just on a smaller scale. So it'd be more like, woohoo, <laughs> woohoo. Okay, so much smaller scale. So my high school basketball team, for the first year, my junior year, had, had won enough games that the last game of the season, if we won that game, we were going to go on to district, which we had never done before. And this was an intense game, back and forth. We were one point ahead, they were one point ahead. We were one point ahead, they were one point ahead. At one point during the second uh, half of the game, my uh, pep band director, Mr. Fisk, this wonderful Christian man who just loved Jesus and was not an in-your-face kind of a guy, <laughs> began running up and down the sidelines and mimicking the referee. <laughs> because there was a bad call. And the referee, who was a bit, let's say, portly or whatnot, turned and, technical foul, called it on our pep band director. And so then they were three points ahead, the other team. And so Mr. Fisk, with his head hung in shame, left, <laughs> like he left the gym, and the pet band was directorless the rest of the game. But that whole second half of the game, we were on, on our toes. We, you did not sit down, and everyone was kind of leaning in toward the court because it was back and forth. And in the last possible minute, we were, they were one point ahead, and from... Like, it should have been a three-pointer, but they didn't have that in high school basketball in the 80s, and whoosh, it goes in, and whoa, it's a miracle! Now, we got crushed at district, but <laughs> we, we made it to district for the first time ever, and I remember them cutting the nets down, the big ladders. I know, well, Hartford, the Blackford Bruins, yay, you know, it's, it was a big deal. I'm going to tell you, there is excitement, there's excitement when something that you've been hoping for starts to happen. There's excitement. If you've ever been pregnant or married to someone who's been pregnant and you were wanting to start a family, <laughs> there's some excitement. You, you do the sonogram, there's the waddling. Dan and Paige are there, man. He's here. He finally arrived. They had him in the hospital. Woo! He's out. Okay? So, uh... I remember Jenny, our fir Jenny's first pregnancy, and we, we wanted to be such good parents, and we did Lamaze, and we did all the things, and we took the classes, and we read like 50,000 books because we knew we were going to mess up. We just wanted to mess up in the right way, not the wrong way. And, and she took the week that she was due, she took that week off of school and, from teaching. And so she met me for lunch, and we were having lunch together, and <clears throat> kind of back hurt a little bit, and I thought, oh, that's odd. And one of the older teachers, thank God for her, put her arm around Jen and was like, 
honey, I think you're in labor. Oh, no, you know, labor hurts. You know, this is just kind of like a weird twinge on my back. And, you know, how many of you have had? Well, they're about, you know, every five minutes. <laughs> okay, so the, the older teacher's like, honey, you're going to go to the hospital now. So, so, so she calls, and, and, and the doctor says, well, come to the office. And so we drive, we drive up to Dr. Hager's office, and, you know, the drive up there, Jenny's getting intense in the car, and so, you know, I'm her Lamaze coach, so I'm, you know, I'm now to stage four breathing, you know, <laughs> okay, you know, okay, we're going to make it, hang on, Jen, so we get, we get into the doctor's office, we get into the doctor's office, and the nurses immediately are on my case, oh, dad, that's stage four breathing, and, you know, look, this is what you should be doing. And then they rebuke Jenny and, you know, oh, we stink. We're first-time parents. We're getting it all wrong already. And, and they had a hard time getting, she couldn't get on the examining table. And finally, with a little bit of help, they got her on the examining table. And one of the nurses says to the doctor, well, how far dilated is she? And they were really terse with us because, you know, we had messed it up so bad. And Dr. Hager's response was, well, I can't really tell. The head's in the way. For those of you that have never done childbirth before, that means it's coming. <laughs> okay? Nobody, nobody had, it was exciting. The excitement was there, I'm telling you. And, and if you've ever had, you know, been pregnant, have, you know, you know, it's exciting. It's exciting. There's excitement when something that you had been hoping for starts to happen. Um, if you've been working on a degree, or a pro graduate school program, you had, I know there was a point in time in this degree program where you were like, you got weary, and you really wanted to walk away. You wanted to quit, and you were like, this is too hard. These people are too mean. This is sucking the life out of my soul. Wah! And then, then you had your comprehensive exams, or the big project, or the dissertation was in, and you get word, you passed. And all of a sudden, all those feelings of, you know, wah, are like, now you're kind of excited because now you're going you're gonna to finish, you're going to get the degree, or you're going to become doctor or so-and-so or whatever it is. I mean, there's excitement when what you've been hoping for starts to happen. It's the way life works. It doesn't matter if it's a ball team, if it's a birth, if it's an engagement, if it's graduation. When what you're hoping for starts to happen, you get a little excited. You can't help it. Even if you're a Spock. I know, I'm a Spock. I can speak to the Spocks today. Even if you're a Spock and you're like, I will contain all emotions, I am excited, Captain. <laughs> on the inside, the little butterflies are still going on. And even though you don't want to let anyone know, on the inside, you're excited. Because it happens. It's, it's the way it works. I want to suggest to you today something really simple. Who Jesus is and what he has done is an exciting thing. It's not a private stuff it in and keep it to myself thing. It's a thing that you can't help but share thing, this Jesus thing. And that's the mood one Sunday in Jerusalem. So if you brought along a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 19. That's where we're going to be today for the lion's share of the text. Luke, Luke chapter 19. So the Sabbath has ended, and Jesus has shared a meal with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus up in Bethany. And it's now Sunday, and Jesus is going to head into Jerusalem with his disciples. 
this Jesus, this rabbi who had done miracles, who had taught as someone who had authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees, but, I mean, different in a compelling way, this Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, and word got out, Jesus is coming. And they knew that the God squad, they knew the Pharisees were out to get him. And so there was this, oh, man, is he going to totally walk in and smoke them all? I mean, and so there was this sense of excitement and buzz in the city. They were excited, and they were hopeful, and they were wondering, is he the one? Is he the one? Is he the one we've been waiting for? Is he the one that's going to set things right? And they all had different expectations of what that would look like and how that would play out. And some of them lined up with what Jesus was going to do, and some of them didn't, right? If you know anything about the Jews of this time period of the first century, the Jews, their mindset is this. Hey, we're God's chosen people. Booyah. God's chosen people, children of Abraham, through which God's going to bless the whole world. That's us, baby. Only, we're having to live under the thumb of Roman rule with Roman laws enforced by Roman soldiers. And that's rough. And we, it, we're, we're taxed heavily. We have layers of corrupt government that we have to deal with. And so here we are, God's people. It didn't seem right that we, God's chosen people, are having to eke out an existence here in the backwaters of a world power. That's not how it should be. God's people, right? And so they were wondering if Jesus is coming in and he's going to, maybe he'll become king. Maybe, just maybe we'll throw off the yoke of Roman rule. Maybe we'll get to expand. Maybe we'll have some flashbacks of what it was like under David and Solomon. And so there was all kinds of stuff going on. And so let's pick that up. Luke chapter 19, verse 29. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt, just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the, colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. And so they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. This is an unridden donkey, unridden colt, but it's a donkey, okay? And there was a cultural practice in the time, and I'm going to get this word right, angaria. Sounds Italian, doesn't it? Mm. Angaria. And what that, what that was was simply if, if an, elect, if an, if an uh, elected official a dignitary, a king, a Roman officer, if they had need of something that you owned, you would have to lend it to them. Now, they wouldn't get to keep it. They would have to return it to you. But this angaria was this practice of, you know, I'm the proconsul, I'm the king, I'm the governor, and I have need of that horse. You'd have to lend me your horse, and I have to give it back to you, but you have to lend it to me. And that practice extended to rabbis. Rabbis could leverage Angaria from the people. So it's not weird that the disciples of this very famous rabbi would ask for this cult and that the people would be like, yeah, sure, you can take it. It's not like they were like, hey, we're being robbed, call 911. It's not like they were freaking out. It was the practice, okay? And so they were, you know, they were okay 
because they knew the donkey would come back. And so it's interesting to me. So here Jesus gets on this donkey and he's riding in, and Jesus knows exactly what he's riding into. And so let's, let's keep going with the passage, verse 36 and following. As he rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who come in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. How interesting, right? I mean, so one of the things I want you to have in your mind about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is that that's not a coincidental thing. That's an intentional thing. And Jesus is actually saying something to the people of Jerusalem by doing it. And the, the Jews knowing their scriptures, would have known that. And it comes from Zechariah. Um, and I'll read this passage to you. Zechariah uh, chapter 9. If I can find my little handy-dandy. Uh, there it is. Okay? So this is one of the prophets of the Old Testament. It says this. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners. Come back to the place of safety. And so it goes on and on. The Lord will appear above his people. So Jesus, by getting on this donkey, is saying, yes, I'm a king, I am a king, but I am the humble servant king. I am the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament looked forward to. He wouldn't have said Old Testament. The one the scriptures look forward to. And so he's making a statement. And it's, and what he's saying is, I'm not going to be like Caesar. I'm not going to be like Herod. My kingdom doesn't work that way. And so it's, it's, a, it's a big statement for the people of Jerusalem to see him riding in on this donkey. And so they throw coats down. They're, they're excited. There's the buzz. They, and, and it's fascinating to me, right? This same crowd, this same crowd in just a few days, instead of saying, Hosanna, what does the crowd say? Crucify him. If you've ever been elected to office in America, or you've ever been a pastor, you will know this truth. People can be fickle. People can be fickle. And they will turn on a dime. It happens. And politicians know this, all right? Republicans, Democrats doesn't know, and it was true in the first century. This same crowd, oh, oh, woo, Hosanna, you know, in just a few short days. Give us Barabbas. Kill him. Nail him to a tree. And so... Jesus' kingdom is not going to be taken. It's not going to come by force. It's not going to come with swords. And it's not going to kick out the Romans the way some of the people thought at this time. And 
Jesus says something else that I think is powerful, and I don't, I don't have the words for the screen, but I want you to hear this. Um, he says this, But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. Oh, how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace, but now, now it's too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle and close you in from every side. They'll crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not accept your opportunity of salvation. Here is the anointed one, the Messiah, who's come to the city of Jerusalem, and they don't fully recognize what's right in front of them. And this is a, this is a saying of judgment. And it, for those of you that know your history, you know that it came to pass. In A.D. 70, Titus uh, launched a siege of Jerusalem that lasted for weeks and Josephus writes about it. And the carnage and the death and the stuff that took place was horrific. And when they were done, when the Romans finally conquered the Temple Mount, they literally dismantled the city. They pulled down the stone structures, they burned what they could, and literally fulfilled what Jesus says in this saying. And so it's a, it's a saying of judgment, which is basically... If you end up rejecting Jesus, it's not good, right? I mean, that, he, in another Gospels, Jesus talks, uh, passes a fig tree, and the same thing plays out, and there's no fruit, and he, and he curses it. And the next time they pass the fig tree, the disciples are all like, whoa, look at the tree, man, that you curse, like withered up, whoa! It's, it's, and it's judgment, right? So... I want to ask some questions in light of these passages, but more specifically, I want to pull out this statement that he makes. Um, and so he's challenged. The Pharisees want his disciples to shut up because they're inciting the crowd to say, Hosanna, blessed is he. And Jesus says to them, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. There's something about who Jesus is and what he is going to do that if his own followers just keep it in and remain silent, that somehow things that are not designed to praise God will start praising God because of the scope of what's taking place. And that's the imagery that Jesus is using in this passage. Um, and I've experienced it. I've experienced it in my own life. But let me ask some questions related to that. The, the first question is simply this. If Jesus were to ride into the parking lot of your school or work or the driveway of your home, how would he be received? Would he be welcomed? Would it be more like the Pharisees? Of, <coughs> Shh, quiet. And then secondly, do you see Jesus as king? How is he different from a president or prime minister? How is his kingdom different than either the Republican or Democratic visions for America? What is Jesus' kingdom truly like? And then lastly, in our world today, who is telling the followers of Jesus to basically 
shut up? These are questions to consider at Easter time. See, I think if you and I, as followers of Jesus, I think if we're silent, then God is going to use very unlikely means to praise his son. I think it's going to happen, even if we're silent. I mean, how many times have you thought, man, I need to tell so-and-so about the goodness of God or God's forgiveness, and then for whatever reason, you just kept it in? You just, it didn't come out of your mouth. Um, I remember even as a senior in high school, there was this girl named Amy. Those of you that have been around generations, you've heard me tell my story about Amy. Amy was on the uh, yearbook. She was on the school newspaper. She was a thinker. She was a reader. She was smart. She was in the top ten of the class. She was just a sharp kid. And she started reading the Chronicles of Narnia. She did. She was like totally into C.S. Lewis, but didn't have anything to do with God, didn't believe in Jesus, and she had finished several of the Narnia books, and right before English class, she says to me, hey, Mark, I, don't you sometimes, I just, I just wish Aslan were real. And I'm, you know, inside of me is this like, yeah, you know, Mr. Lewis wrote those books because he wanted to give you a picture of God so that if you thought Aslan was cool, you'd go like, oh, so that's like Jesus? And, and, and it was all in here, and it went, mm. And it didn't come out of my mouth. And the bell rang, and I was like, I'm going to tell her, I am so going to bring this up the next time. And then I just didn't. And I didn't. And I went off to Wheaton College, and she went off to Ball State University, and she never finished her freshman year. She didn't. Because she took her life in her bathroom. Because she was convinced life is hard, life is meaningless, and there is no Aslan. How many times have we been silent? And it's been in there, and you just feel it. You know, it's the Holy Spirit in you, and it just stops at your mouth. Or how many times have we said, I'll pray for you, but then we sort of forget? I'll tell you, the, one, of, one great thing to do is if somebody asks you to pray for them, stop what you're doing right there and go, all right, let's pray right now. Boom. Or how many times have we, oh, I, need, I really should invite so-and-so to church, and then... When we get around to do it, like we kind of like, chick, we're, uh, they'll probably say no because none of us, let's be honest, rejection is hard. <laughs> it's hard enough when you're dating, let alone when you're trying to invite somebody along to church. Um, today you've got a stone, right? Some of you have a stone. And, and at any time during communion, we're going to celebrate communion today, you can, you can lay your stone in the jar. And today this stone represents for me silence. It's the sin of silence. And I hope that if in laying your stone down today, I hope that what happens in you and in your heart is that God ignites a passion in you and an excitement again about who Jesus is and what he has done. Uh, three years ago, I was, uh, three years ago, it was in the middle of the summer, I went downtown uh, Lexington on a Saturday night. I I've done this from time to time. I'll go sit at, what is it, Triangle Park? Because you can hear the fountains, and it's nice, and it's relaxing, and, and so, and you can be outside. Oh, it's so awesome, okay? But what I've noticed is that if I'm down there, and I'm like, you know, writing something down, or reading a book, or whatnot, um, and it's in the evening, you will get accosted much more aggressively today than you used to be um, accosted for, um, 
people who are homeless and have a real need, and then people who need some drug or alcohol money, okay? And they'll hit you up pretty, pretty aggressively. Like five or ten years ago, it wasn't as bad as, say, it is these days, all right? And so it happens, and, and I, at, that, at that one particular evening, I didn't have my driver's license on me. I didn't have any credit cards. I didn't even have cash. I didn't have anything. So if the cops had pulled me over, it would have been interesting. <laughs> but I didn't have anything in my pockets. And so, you know, about the third person to come up to me and ask for uh, a handout was this clearly homeless guy because he had two bags of stuff, and he comes up, hey, man, you know, plop, you know, uh, and he wants to get somewhere, and he wants some bus money, right? And I'm like, hey, I don't, you know, I don't have any cash. I'm sorry, I don't have any cash. And he says to me, well, God bless you. And I'm like, no, I didn't give you anything, <laughs> right? Did you not? Were you kind of sleeping through that part? I don't have any cash. And then this guy proceeds to go into this big, long story about how God is just amazing, and God's gotten a hold of him, and he's a new person because of what Jesus Christ has done. And even though he doesn't have a house anymore, and he's kind of homeless and, and whatnot, he's found that God meets his needs every day, every week. He can count on God to come through for him. And I'm getting this full-orb testimony from this homeless guy in downtown Lexington. And i got to wonder that if you and I are silent, even the stones will cry out. The least likely places will ascribe value and worth to Jesus because he's good and he's done an amazing thing. Um, Matthew 3, John the Baptist says this. Uh, John is baptizing people and, and uh, he says this. John 3, safe. Let's close. I'm getting there. Children of Abraham, where am I? Oh, 3, 9. Thank you. Don't just say to each other, we're safe for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from what? These very stones. These very stones. God can create children of Abraham out of these very stones. If you and I are silent, Jesus is still going to be praised. It's going to happen. It'll come from the least likely places. But even creation itself can't help but acknowledge the king who is coming to heal the broken hearted, to restore what was lost.